This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Support Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 142nd episode of the podcast. And today is Thursday, May 10th. And before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors that signed up to support us just this last week. And that includes Alexander G. Carlson, Amala, Communist Dreamer, Diane Barkin, Eric, a.k.a. Real Deep State, Hector Lloyd, Jeffrey McDonald, Kyle Rome, Michael Remy, Niku Marisot, and Oa Bystrom. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's show, we've got quite a loaded episode. First, we'll talk about Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear agreement and discuss his new policy proposal to cut funding for children's health insurance. Also in this week's Trump news, he decided to go full Hillary and invoked identity politics in order to shield his CIA nominee, Gina Haspel, from criticism. We'll then move on to the main theme of the episode, which is demo SARS, and discuss pretty much how the Democratic Party still has a bunch of dinosaurs driving them towards extinction. We'll start with a story about Tom Perez, who was reportedly instructed by Bill Clinton to stop the Bernie wing of the party from taking over. Also, Obama decided to endorse Dianne Feinstein because he probably also wants to stop progressives from taking over and dethroning establishment figures like Dianne Feinstein. Additionally, a member of the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee argues that the establishment actually should be able to rig primaries against progressives. And when it comes to progressive news, Bernie Sanders' team is forcing members of the Democratic Party to prove that they care about democracy as much as they say they do by asking them to sign a letter in support of reducing superdelegates. We'll also discuss Amazon's decision to put thousands of jobs on hold in protest of a new tax in Seattle that would actually fight the city's homelessness crisis to which Amazon contributed to in part. And finally on this episode, Californian and New York lawmakers teamed up to fight for net neutrality. I'll tell you about their awesome plan to save the internet in other states as well. So that's on the agenda for today. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the show. Uh, let's do it. President Trump announced today at 2 p.m. that he made a decision regarding the Iran nuclear deal. And against the advice of our international allies, he decided that it's time for the United States to withdraw from the deal. In 2015, the previous administration joined with other nations in a deal regarding Iran's nuclear program. This agreement was known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. In theory, the so-called Iran deal was supposed to protect the United States and our allies from the lunacy of an Iranian nuclear bomb. The deal lifted crippling economic sanctions on Iran in exchange for very weak limits on the regime's nuclear activity and no limits at all 
on its other malign behavior, including its sinister activities in Syria, Yemen, and other places all around the world. At the heart of the Iran deal was a giant fiction that a murderous regime desired only a peaceful nuclear energy program. Today, we have definitive proof that this Iranian promise was a lie. Last week, Israel published intelligence documents long concealed by Iran, conclusively showing the Iranians' regime and its history of pursuing nuclear weapons. The fact is, this was a horrible, one-sided deal that should have never, ever been made. It didn't bring calm, it didn't bring peace, and it never will. If I allowed this deal to stand, there would soon be a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Everyone would want their weapons ready by the time Iran had theirs. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. In a few moments, I will sign a presidential memorandum to begin reinstating U.S. nuclear sanctions on the Iranian regime. We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. Any nation that helps Iran in its quest for nuclear weapons could also be strongly sanctioned by the United States. If the regime continues its nuclear aspirations, it will have bigger problems than it has ever had before. And yes, make no mistake about it, that was in fact a threat that he made towards Iran at the end of that clip. And let me translate what he's saying, really, because with that threat, he's saying, if we feel like we want to invade Iran, we're going to tell you that they have nuclear weapons, so you think we're justified in overthrowing their regime. That's really what he's saying. And we're kind of seeing this play out before our very eyes, because Iran isn't actually pursuing a nuclear weapon, and they are, in fact, complying with the agreement. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. That's according to the International Atomic Energy Agency, who's in there, who inspects Iran and makes sure that they are complying with the deal. So at any time, Donald Trump and Republicans can just say they're not complying, they're building a nuke, now we have to invade them. And we're justified if we want to do that since they are building a nuke. That's essentially what this now comes down to. Now, does this mean that they're going to invade Iran tomorrow? No, but certainly what this is, is Donald Trump and Republicans building their case for regime change in Iran. And Donald Trump contends, quote, we have definitive proof that Iran was lying when they said that they didn't want a nuclear bomb. And to prove this, he cites evidence from Israel. So last week, remember when we talked about how Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was trying to basically bait us into escalating tensions with Iran and potentially bait us even into invading them? Trump's decision here is evidence that Netanyahu trying to bait us into escalating tensions with Iran actually worked. So Netanyahu was able to dupe us over. See how easy it was? And Netanyahu used the strategy that Bush's administration used back in 2003 to justify the uh, regime change war in Iraq. Oh, well, Iraq ha has weapons of mass destruction. Here's the evidence. We better make sure that we invade them. And Donald Trump is one of the individuals that claims that that war was foolish. But here he is allowing Netanyahu 
to use the same strategy on him and dupe him over that way in the same way he says Bush duped us all over in 2003. And what's interesting is that he specifically named Iran's menacing activity in countries like Yemen, but he had absolutely nothing to say about Saudi Arabia, our ally, effectively carrying out a genocide. In fact, I shouldn't say effectively, literally carrying out a genocide, because I think calling what they're doing anything other than genocide is incorrect. He had nothing to say about Saudi Arabia. Nothing. So, since he decided to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, now we talk about what's next. Now, over time, we're going to see Republicans build the case for war with Iran, as I alluded to. Now, also, with every action comes a reaction, and certainly we're learning that quickly because Russia actually threatened consequences in the event the United States did want to withdraw from the pact, and we just did. So this further escalates tensions between the United States and Russia. And not only that, who would be willing to form a pact with us if we're willing to just break them willy-nilly like that? And furthermore, Iran actually looks better than we look because they're saying that they would actually honor this deal if the U.S. withdraws from it, which makes us look like liars. And additionally, as Mark Landler of the New York Times reports, it also raises the prospect of increasing tensions with Russia and China, which are also parties to the agreement. France, Germany, and the United Kingdom regret the U.S. decision to get out of the Iranian nuclear deal, President Emmanuel Macron of France said in a post on Twitter shortly after Mr. Trump's announcement. The international regime against nuclear proliferation is at stake. So, by choosing to unilaterally withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, not only do we look like liars, we look downright dumb because really if donald trump's goals are in fact what he says they are then this makes him look dumb this decision is illogical because he wants to make sure that iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon so even if his criticism is correct which it's not even if he's right that this deal doesn't go far enough well isn't it still better than nothing I mean, as a progressive who wants Medicare for all, I can at least admit that Obamacare was better than nothing. I wish it went further, but I wouldn't just choose to destroy the Affordable Care Act altogether because it doesn't go far enough. I would want to strengthen it and improve it. So can't we apply that logic here? And since Donald Trump thinks that the Iran deal doesn't go far enough, isn't it better than nothing? I mean, by his own admission, it's at least somewhat effective, even though he'd like it to be stronger. But his rationale is to pull out altogether and not impose any restrictions on the Iranian regime at all. That doesn't make sense. It goes against what he claims he wants. And even though he is imposing harsh economic sanctions on them, well, I mean, if you truly care about them getting a bomb, wouldn't you want to target that aspiration in particular? It makes no sense. It's almost as if Donald Trump wants them to build a nuclear bomb so he can punish them for it. It's almost as if warmongers advising him on foreign policy issues have been trying to justify regime change in Iran for decades, and this just adds fuel to the fire. It gives them an excuse to do just that. This is what warmongers like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo pushed for. So now we have to be hyper-vigilant. Because, again... It's not going to happen today or tomorrow, but their ultimate goal is regime change. It's been a goal of Bush's administration. It's been a goal of Dick Cheney. It's been a goal of John McCain. This has been their goal for a very long time. So now we're going to watch them build their case for regime change because 
they're already telling us that Israel brought them evidence that Iran is developing a nuclear weapon. So watch everything Donald Trump does and his warmongering advisors do because now, mark my words, they're going to try to convince us that Iran is lashing out and that they want to build a nuclear weapon. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that Donald Trump just, you know, wanted to get out of the Iran nuclear agreement so that way he can erase more of Obama's history. But this isn't really about that. This is about, well, that's part of it probably, but this is really about building the case for invading Iran. Might not be today, might not be tomorrow, maybe not even within Trump's administration, but certainly it's what Republicans want. It's a, It's been a goal of theirs for a while. And Donald Trump just put us that much closer to them achieving their goal. Corporate Democrat extraordinaire Dianne Feinstein may be in trouble because she is facing a fierce primary challenge to the left and she couldn't even muster up enough support from the state Californian Democratic Party for an endorsement. So that's, that's pretty embarrassing if you are seeking your sixth term and your own party won't even support you. But can you guess who decided to swoop in and come to Dianne Feinstein's rescue? Well, another corporate Democrat, Barack Obama, because according to David Siders of Politico, former President Barack Obama on Friday endorsed Senator Dianne Feinstein's bid to fend off a re-election challenge from the Democratic Party's left flank, calling the California senator one of America's most effective champions for progress. That's hilarious. The endorsement, a rare intervention from Obama, served as the highest profile rebuke yet of state Senator Kevin DeLeon's long-shot effort to unseat Feinstein. Feinstein, a centrist and an institution in California Democratic politics, has maintained large leads over De Leon in fundraising and polls ahead of the state's June primary election, but she has also suffered from increasing angst among progressive activists here, failing to secure the state Democratic Party's endorsement earlier this year. I'm proud to give Dianne Feinstein my strong endorsement for her re-election to the United States Senate, Obama said in a prepared statement. She's always been an indispensable leader for California, and we became dear friends and partners in the fight to guarantee affordable health care and economic opportunity for everybody to protect our planet from climate change and our kids from gun violence. He said, I ask Californians to join me in supporting Dianne Feinstein's re-election and returning one of America's most effective champions of progress to the Senate. So I think it's convenient that Obama decides to cite the only areas where she's progressive but omits all the aspects of Dianne Feinstein's conservatism that makes her so dislikable. Now, before we get to the substance of the article, I do have to critique this author because he only mentioned Kevin DeLeon. Is he to the left of Dianne Feinstein? Yes. Is he a progressive? That's iffy. Absent from this article were actual progressives challenging Dianne Feinstein, like David Hildebrand and Alison Hartson, who actually outraised Dianne Feinstein, I believe, in the month of March. So... How can you talk about a primary challenge and omit her primary challengers? It's absurd to me. Now, getting to Dianne Feinstein, I mean, really, she's always been terrible. <laughs> she is a conservative Democrat, one of the most conservative Democrats. She is against Medicare for All, and she actually used Republican talking points just last year 
to explain why she doesn't support it. She is for disastrous free trade deals. She not only voted for the Patriot Act, but she voted to extend it in 2006 and 2011. She voted against requiring the U.S. government to obtain a warrant before wiretapping U.S. citizens that make foreign phone calls. She voted in favor of reducing tax rates on capital gains. She voted in favor of the Iraq War. She voted in favor of Bill Clinton's welfare reform bill, which basically just gutted welfare in the mid-90s. She voted for the crime bill. She called the Snowden leaks an act of treason. So, I mean, I, I don't know how Obama, with the straight face, can say that she is, let me find the quote again, one of America's most effective champions for progress. <laughs> well, when you are that right wing, then maybe your whole worldview is skewed because Obama, he's a centrist. He's not center left. He's arguably center right with regard to some economic policies, but he's a centrist. So from his perspective, maybe it seems as though she really is super progressive. But for those of us in reality, she is nothing more than a conservative. And if you're wondering why she's so terrible, well, it's because she's swimming in corporate cash. Over her career, her top donors include Time Warner, Wells Fargo, Northrop Grumman, who is a defense contractor, Bank of America. And in 2018 alone, she's taken PAC money from Comcast, Facebook, Amazon, Honeywell, Time Warner, AT&T, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, and she's even taken individual contributions from John Podesta's lobbying firm. So she doesn't represent voters, she represents donors. And in choosing not to retire, she's not just hurting her constituents, she's hurting the Democratic Party. Because it's people like this within the Democratic Party who refuse to retire that are basically becoming the face of the Democratic Party. And who looks at Dianne Feinstein and gets excited about her policies? She does very little to help the American people, and what she does do is push for incrementalism. So she needs to retire, and really this whole article, it reminds me of a piece in The Onion with the headline, Cobweb-Covered Skeleton Gripping Senate Desk Expected to Seek 15th Term. And really, I think that <laughs> that accurately sums up Dianne Feinstein, not because I think she's too old to run, because I support someone who's a thousand years old, Bernie Sanders, but because she's out of touch and oligarchs within the Democratic Party establishment will cling to power forever. And it's not just Dianne Feinstein, because Nancy Pelosi just announced that she's going to be running to be speaker again, and she is refusing to step down, even though she's hurting Democrats, even if Republicans are literally using her as political fodder by linking other Democrats to her, she's refusing to step down, because it's, it's not about voters, it's not about policy, it's about power, and they want it. And really, when you get power, you don't want to give up that power. Hence why they keep running again and again and again and again, long after they've lost the approval of their own base. So, it, Mr. Hope and Change just endorsed the political status quo. What happened to Hope and Change? I mean, at what point did Obama think, I'm going to abandon this philosophy of Hope and Change? I mean, was it a ruse all from the start? Were we just duped from the very beginning? It seems like it, right? I mean... He didn't have to endorse Dianne Feinstein. He actually rarely comes out to endorse Democrats, as the article states. He could have taken up a hobby. He could have sat this one out. He could have been playing the brand new God of War game, which is phenomenal, by the way. But instead, he chose to uh, jump back in politics to endorse one of the most unlikable Democrats in the country. He's stepping back into politics to make sure that progressives don't gain any power. And what's funny is that he's coasting off of his high approval rating and recently made a really interesting comment because he says that he 
is intending to craft the Obama Foundation in a way that would create one million Obamas. He stated, After I left office, what I realized is the Obama Foundation could eventually create a platform for young up-and-coming leaders, both in the United States and around the world, Obama said at a conference in Tokyo in March. If I could do that effectively, then, you know, I would create a hundred or a thousand or a million young Barack Obamas or Michelle Obamas or, you know, the next group of people who could take that baton in the relay race that is human progress and continue to build on that work that we have done. So that's really going to be my focus. So in other words, his goal is to create one million disappointments because that's exactly what Obama was. He was a disappointment. He is someone who is growing more narcissistic by the day. And I get it. His approval rating is high. And he thinks that he can help out the party by trying to, quote, create a million Obamas. But he did very little to move humanity forward. And you don't have to take it from me. You can ask the children in Yemen who were afraid to leave their homes and go outside because they were worried that one of Obama's drones would target them and kill them. Why don't you ask the family members of civilians he droned in Pakistan and Somalia if he's contributed much to human progress? I bet they would laugh in your face. And look, that's not to say that everything Obama did was bad. That's not what I'm trying to convey here. He did do some great things. I think that the Iran nuclear deal was great. I think that reestablishing diplomatic connections with Cuba was really important. I think that the Affordable Care Act was a teeny tiny step in the right direction. But, I mean, it was better than nothing. So, I mean, he has done some good things, but the fact of the matter is that he's now holding back the party. He's now stopping us from making progress because he's keeping people like Dianne Feinstein who don't care at all about progressive policies in power. So, I mean, really, if his goal is to create a million Obamas... I'll pass because I think personally we can do better than Obama and I know for a fact that we can do better than Dianne Feinstein who doesn't give a damn about the people. She is a multi-millionaire. She's an oligarch herself. She is so out of touch. She has no idea what average Americans are dealing with. She can't explain at all the struggle of normal Americans. How often does she even hold town halls? How often does she speak with her own constituents? It's absurd. So, of course, he shouldn't have endorsed Dianne Feinstein, but I mean, corporatists are going to do everything in their power to save the corporatocracy that is waging on in the Democratic Party. It's disgusting. Shame on Obama. Jonathan Allen, who is the co-author of the book Shattered about Hillary Clinton's failed presidential campaign, recently appeared on C-SPAN, and he had something really interesting to say about current DNC chairman Tom Perez, specifically with what the Clintons instructed him to do. But right now, the Republican National Committee is uh, doing a lot better in terms of its fundraising, in terms of its coordination. Uh, the DNC is unpopular with its own base. Uh, there, half of the Democratic Party, or roughly half the Democratic Party, felt like the DNC was unfairly tipping the scales in the last 
uh, presidential election, trying to get uh, Hillary Clinton nominated, trying to hurt Bernie Sanders. So you start with that bad blood. And really, there's just been a clash between these two sides that has resumed. The hostilities that had been put aside at the Democratic Convention in 2016 resumed the minute that Donald Trump was elected. This huge battle for the soul of the Democratic Party between uh, the, the Clinton-type folks and the Sanders folks. And Tom Perez is in the middle of that, and he's gotten very explicit instructions from President Clinton as we write in the in the paperback extension of the, the original book. Uh, he's gotten instructions from Bill Clinton not to let the party go to the Bernie Sanders folks. That was really telling. And it makes sense that Bill Clinton, in fact, did instruct Tom Perez to make sure that the Bernie wing of the party doesn't actually get power because Tom Perez is doing things to make sure that progressives don't actually get power. I mean, just in the um, last year, at the end of 2017, there was a huge purge of progressives from the DNC. Anyone who wasn't loyal to him, anyone who supported Keith Ellison over him, even if they were on the DNC for years... He purged them. He kicked them off the Rules and Bylaws Committee and replaced them with stooges for not just him, but uh, the Clinton wing of the party. So when Jonathan Allen talks about how Bill Clinton instructed Tom Perez to not let the Bernie wing of the party get power, it makes sense because Tom Perez was already doing it. But it, it's interesting to know that he's really following out the orders of Bill Clinton. Now, I do want to address some incorrect things that Jonathan Allen stated during that interview. He said incorrectly that hostilities between the Clinton and Bernie Sanders wings, that was put aside during the Democratic National Convention, but that's not actually true. I mean, throughout the whole process of the DNC convention, they were trying to silence Bernie Sanders delegates. Bernie delegates were protesting. They were walking out. It never stopped. I mean, people weren't able to put aside their anger and disgust with the fact that Hillary Clinton literally cheated her way to the nomination. I mean, you can't just put that aside. A lot of people still swallowed their pride and voted for Hillary Clinton in spite of her cheating because they didn't like Donald Trump. But make no mistake about it. The hostilities, the civil war that's been ongoing since the 2016 primaries... That never stopped. So I think that that's a really important point to make because as he talks about the civil war in the Democratic Party, it really is a fight for the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. And if you are not a disingenuous person, if you're being truthful, if you look at public opinion polls with regard to the Democratic Party's base, all the policies that Bernie Sanders and progressives are talking about, they have an overwhelming majority of support among Democratic Party voters. So I mean... You can't try to lie to us and say that the Clinton wing really has the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. I don't even know what they're arguing for. What policies do they care about? All they try to do is champion incrementalism. And when we criticize their lack of progressivism, they invoke identity politics to try to shame us and say that, well, you know, because we don't like Hillary Clinton or this particular um, neoliberal candidate, it must be because he or she is either gay or a woman. It's nonsense. They don't stand for anything. We stand for everything that the core base of the Democratic Party supports.
So this is a civil war that has been going on and never stopped. Now, I do think that it's incorrect to characterize Tom Perez as someone who's in the middle because he's absolutely taken aside. Again, he purged progressives from the DNC, from high-ranking positions of the DNC, people like James Zogby, and he replaced them with Democratic Party loyalists. And he hasn't stopped the DNC from making payments to Hillary Clinton's super PAC. So there's still very much collusion between the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign, or Hillary Clinton's team at this point, rather. So, of course, it's the case that Bill Clinton personally doesn't want the DNC DNC to stop being beholden and colluding with Hillary Clinton because he has a personal gain from that. As Hillary Clinton's super PAC makes millions of dollars from the DNC by renting out their list to the DNC, well, that helps Hillary Clinton and, of course, through Hillary Clinton helps him. They're making money off of the DNC. They're still draining state parties. So they want to make sure that that gravy train continues, hence why the Clintons still very much have a large amount of influence and power within the Democratic Party, even if they don't have any political power anymore whatsoever. And it's not just Bill Clinton who's been trying to push back against the progressive wave and who's been clearly trying to defeat the progressive wing in the Democratic Party civil war because President Obama was doing everything in his power in 2017 to pull strings for Tom Perez in order to defeat Keith Ellison's bid to become the next DNC chairman. He even reportedly made personal phone calls to DNC members. So, Democratic Party leaders like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, they are doing everything in their power to make sure that the Democratic Party remains prehistoric. They're demosars. But as they do this, as they push back against this populist wave, they are pushing the party towards extinction. Because if you're against progressivism, then you are undermining the will of Democratic Party voters. Not just progressives, but all Democratic Party voters. Because again, if you go issue by issue, they support Medicare for all. They support tuition-free public colleges and universities. And when they do things like this, when they try to make sure that the Bernie wing of the party loses... This makes them more unpopular. It hurts the Democratic Party brand because just last week, a new Reuters Ipsos poll found that Democrats lost even more ground with millennials. And really, at this point, with the way that people like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton are trying to defeat the Bernie wing of the party, this populist insurgency, they're going to drive away an entire generation from the Democratic Party. It's hurting the party. So if Tom Perez really cared about the future of the Democratic Party as he says he does, then he should do everything in his power to embrace progressivism, to embrace populism, and to actually listen and internalize what Bernie Sanders is saying. Because the Democratic Party, since they lost to Donald Trump, they should have done a lot of soul-searching to realize how we can lose an election to a reality television show star. I mean, if you don't do any bit of introspection after that, then you're just narcissistic, and it's going to be your downfall. So, it, this isn't surprising to me, but it's still obnoxious to hear how Democratic Party leaders out of power are still trying to influence the party and fight back against the progressive wave that the new generation is trying to push upon the DNC, it's so frustrating. You had your chance, and now it's our turn. So fuck off, go away, let us have our chance, because you guys ruined the Democratic Party. Bill Clinton and Obama, under their leadership, the Democratic Party has been decimated. 
So now it's time to let the next generation take over. But unfortunately, the status quo doesn't want to relinquish power. So as you all know, lately, the Democratic Party establishment has been especially vocal about their desire to protect democracy because they are suing WikiLeaks and Russia for allegedly meddling in the 2016 elections. In fact, let's hear what DNC Chairman Tom Perez had to say about them wanting to protect elections. That's what we believe in as Democrats. Elections should be fair. Okay, so if you believe that elections should be fair, then let me ask you this, Tom. When Bernie Sanders defeated Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire by 14 points, was it fair that they both walked away with the same number of total delegates? Since Hillary Clinton already got six superdelegates to commit to her before anyone in the state even casted their vote? Do you really think that's fair, Tom? Of course it's not fair. Anyone with a brain knows that that's not fair. So... While the Democratic Party continues to virtue signal about how much they care about democracy, I find it really strange that none of them have come out to denounce superdelegates because we all know about the ongoing civil war within the Democratic Party and one of the biggest issues, one of the biggest concerns for the Sanders wing of the party is superdelegates. So why wouldn't Democratic Party leaders who purport to care about democracy come out and denounce superdelegates? Why wouldn't they call for at least a reduction in superdelegates if they care so much about democracy? It's really curious. I mean, Tom Perez certainly won't commit to cutting superdelegates. Nancy Pelosi won't either. Nor will any other Democratic Party leader. Nobody's spoken out against this in spite of their insistence that they care so much about democracy. So how can you continue to claim to care about democracy and the fairness of elections if you refuse to come out and denounce superdelegates, which is an institution that's inherently unfair. It makes no sense, right? So apparently Bernie Sanders agrees with me, and what his team is trying to do is force members of the Democratic Party, particularly the Democratic Party leaders, to come out and show their cards and finally, once and for all, denounce superdelegates. Because according to BuzzFeed's Ruby Kramer, a top Bernie Sanders official is asking Democratic leaders, including Hillary Clinton, to sign a draft letter recommitting to vastly shrinking or effectively eliminating the party's controversial superdelegate system and ultimately changing the president presidential nominating process. The Sanders ally, his former campaign manager Jeff Weaver, is in talks with Clinton's team about the letter and also plans to solicit signatures from House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez, and DNC Vice Chair Representative Keith Ellison, according to two people familiar with the undertaking. The effort to make Democratic primaries more fair, a process that has spanned two years, two committees, and dozens of arcane rules about how to make changes to the rules, is nearing its long-awaited end. Next month, the party's Rules and Bylaws Committee convenes to begin drafting the final language that DNC members will or will not approve in a vote this summer. Committee members remain divided on the idea of a 60% reduction. Some, like longtime party leader Leah Daughtry, support eliminating superdelegates altogether on a first ballot convention vote. Others see superdelegates as a crucial part of the primary system, a safeguard against nominees like President Trump, said one Rules and Bylaws member, Elaine Kamark, a DNC member who has studied presidential politics for years. So I love this. I think that this is a brilliant move because as they continue to tell us how much they care about democracy, Bernie Sanders is saying, look, you care about democracy? Well, now's the time to put up or shut up. Sign this letter. It's a simple thing you can do to tell us that you really care about democracy and you're consistent. Even if 
superdelegates would hurt the establishment's chances at maintaining the status quo, well, what matters really is democracy, right? Isn't that the ultimate goal to make sure that elections are free and fair? So why won't you sign this letter? And it's incredibly apparent that they don't want to sign this letter and they are avoiding it like the plague. Because, I mean, think about this. It doesn't behoove them to sign this because if they unequivocally take a stand against superdelegates, then they're really giving up a portion of their power that is needed for them to rig primaries. But, I mean, if they don't condemn superdelegates, it also hurts them still because they look like frauds, especially after they continue to harp away about the need to protect democracy and ensure that elections remain free and fair. And what Bernie Sanders' team is doing here is backing them into a corner and basically forcing them to take a stand. No more fence-sitting. If you care about democracy, then show it right now. Now, as I alluded to, they're not even recognizing the existence of this letter. In fact, interestingly enough, spokespeople for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer claim to have no knowledge of this letter, and we also have yet to hear from Hillary Clinton or the DNC or Tom Perez. And I find this absurd because, let me remind you, Bernie Sanders is already compromising. Superdelegates is an institution that is so unfair, is so inherently undemocratic that it should be abolished entirely. But Bernie Sanders is already compromising, saying, look, I'm not even calling on you to completely abolish superdelegates, just reduce them. And they can't even do that. They are the biggest hypocrites ever. They continue to care so much about democracy, or claim that they care about democracy, rather, and they refuse to even do something simple. A symbolic gesture that shows that they're in support of reducing superdelegates. If Nancy Pelosi were to hypothetically sign this letter saying she supports even the abolition of superdelegates, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that the DNC members voting would listen to what Nancy Pelosi says and just automatically abolish superdelegates. So, I mean, really, this would be inconsequential for people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to come out and condemn, but they can't even do that. They can't even do the smallest gesture ever to prove to us that they care about democracy. And I want to go back to some of these arguments in favor of keeping superdelegates. What uh, DNC Rules and Bylaws member Elaine Karmick says, she wants to keep superdelegates in order to stop a candidate like Donald Trump from becoming the Democratic Party's nominee. So you're literally admitting here that you are against democracy. You're saying here, you're admitting to all of us that if there's a candidate that you don't like that wins the Democratic Party uh, nominee, the party should be able to overthrow the will of voters. So you're against democracy. You're making an argument that's inherently authoritarian. Let me remind you that democracy is literally in the Democratic Party's name. So this should be a no-brainer for them. But here you have members of the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee admitting that the establishment should be able to unilaterally undermine the will of voters if they opt for a candidate they don't like. Well, guess what? Sometimes candidates who you don't like win. That's just one of the many consequences of democracy. So either you're for democracy or against it. This issue is very black and white. But apparently, some DNC members are taking a stand against democracy. Now, again, we don't necessarily know if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer will sign this letter or Hillary Clinton, we don't know. But what we do know is that they haven't done that yet and that they are dragging their feet and trying to pretend that this letter doesn't exist. And that in and of itself is incredibly telling. 
after leaked audio revealed that the second highest ranking Democrat in the House, Steny Hoyer, was trying to bully a progressive out of a race in Colorado, while an article popped up in the New York Times defending Steny Hoyer titled, Actually, National Democrats should interfere in primaries. Now, let's take a moment to just let that stupidity sink in. This is an individual who is advocating that a party who insists that it remains neutral during primaries should actually be able to cheat. Now, this argument in and of itself is problematic. I mean, it was published in the New York Times, a publication that has a very wide reach. And that's not the only reason why it's problematic. This was published by Elaine Kamark, who's actually a member of the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee. She also happens to be one of the few members of the DNC that happen to argue in favor of keeping superdelegates. So that adds an extra layer of craziness to this story. Not only is this argument being made, but who is making this argument is a story and a scandal really in and of itself. This is a member of the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee admitting that the establishment should be able to rig primaries. The party is getting really shameless in the way that they are spitting in the eyes of progressives. But nonetheless, let's hear her out. She argues the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has come under fire for interfering in a handful of Democratic primary races around the country and trying to clear the primary field for the more moderate candidate they think will be the strongest in the general election. Party leaders have drawn the anger of some progressive Democrats who think that the mere attempt to do so is corrupt and undemocratic. I beg to differ. No other political parties and democracies in the world have abdicated their leadership role as much as Americas have, weakening themselves and their ability to govern in the process. Party leaders have essentially given away the most important power they have to determine who can run and win under the party's banner. This power now rests exclusively with primary voters. This is not to say that there is no role for primaries, but the pendulum between the party's leaders choosing its candidates and primary voters choosing them has swung so far in the direction of voters that even the smallest, most modest efforts to intervene in nomination races are deemed illegitimate. Now, I just want to take a moment and pause right here. She's saying all of this as if it's a bad thing. Oh, well, when they try to intervene, people look at that as, you know, uh, illegitimate. Yeah, of course we do. That's not democracy. They're literally undermining the will of voters, and you're saying that it's preposterous that we view them as illegitimate when they do that, when they undermine the will of voters and overthrow a democratic choice? Really? You, you, you're okay with that? I mean, her argument boggles my mind. How can you make this argument with a straight face? She's basically advocating for a system like Iran, where they have mullahs who dictate who should run and shouldn't run. That's what she thinks the status quo in the Democratic Party should have the power to do. Unbelievable. So we'll get to why her argument is not only really illogical, but also intellectually dishonest, but I want to finish what she says here because I think it's telling. Democratic leaders have intervened in, by my count, 14 primary races, suggesting, usually gently, that someone run for a different race or clear the field for a stronger candidate. Is this legitimate? My answer is an unqualified yes. That's what party leadership is all about. Are party leaders always right? 
Of course not. But they are different from the activists who often dominate the party primaries because they are more concerned with electability than with ideological purity. Party leaders have the job of winning nationally. Democrats are painfully aware that not all congressional districts are Berkeley, California. Left-wing Democrats frequently argue about the need to mobilize the base as a reason to run progressive candidates, but the strongest part of the Democratic base consists of African Americans, and among the districts the committee has intervened in, only two have an African American population percentage that is in the double digits. The average is only about 7%. The Hispanic population in many of these swing districts is larger, as high as 42%, and Democrats may be counting on them to vote Democratic in response to President Trump's immigration policies. In those districts, the name of the game will be to turn out the Democratic base, but also to move some white voters into the Democratic column. If ever there was a year for Democrats to pull this off, 2018 is it. As the special elections of moderates in Virginia, Alabama, and Pennsylvania have shown, progressive Democrats could find themselves celebrating in November if they let the party leaders do their job. You mean, we'll be celebrating if we let party leaders do their job in rigged primaries in the same way that we allowed them to do their job over the last eight years when they lost more than a thousand seats in legislatures across the country, really? Do you hear what you're saying, Elaine? It's, it's preposterous. Her argument is intellectually dishonest, and it makes no sense, really. So her core argument here is that Democratic primary voters care more about ideological purity, whereas Democratic Party leaders, you know, they're more focused on electability. But I have multiple responses to that. She's wrong for a number of reasons. First, if you care about electability, going with moderates has proven to be a disaster for the Democratic Party. And you don't have to go very far back in history to see that that was the case. Second, if you rig primaries, you're just going to piss off voters and demoralize the base. Do I really have to explain to you why rigging primaries and undermining the will of voters is not a very smart electoral strategy? I mean, like, I can't believe that I have to even explain this. Third, she cites electoral victories of moderates as evidence that party leaders are actually right to push for moderates. But first of all, she's not even taken into consideration Trump backlash which will most likely make all types of Democrats more electable. And also, one of the three Democrats that were elected, she forgot to mention that it was Doug Jones who won marginally against someone who was a pedophile. And he barely won. He barely beat the pedophile. So to suggest that the only way Democrats can win is to go with moderates is absurd. And she's saying that really, if we just let them rig primaries for moderates, then we'd be celebrating because Democrats would gain power in the House. And they'd do what? I mean, she doesn't tell us what would happen if a bunch of moderates did come to power. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, Elaine, that Democrats got a supermajority. A bunch of moderate Democrats got a supermajority. Let's, let's just go even further with this. Let's say that they... Um, they won the presidency, they, they won the House, they won the Senate, they could do anything they wanted to do. Would they actually enact progressive policies that would benefit us? <laughs> I mean, we saw how Obama, he wouldn't even push for a public option when they were debating the Affordable Care Act. He wouldn't. And we got a right-wing policy. So this is why we're pushing for progressives, because when we actually do elect Democrats, they only take baby steps to get us 
towards uh, where we need to be. And really, what happens is Republicans fuck up the country. They they you know they take us backwards, and Democrats aren't responding adequately to undo the damage that Republicans cause, which is why we're no longer relying on moderates. So why would we trust them? Why should we trust what Democratic Party leaders want after they failed us time and again? Now, fourth, I disagree with her because if you run progressives, you might actually encourage the Democratic Party's core base, which is left-wingers, not moderates, to come out and vote for the party again. I mean, stop courting moderates and Republicans when you can't even excite your own base. That's what the Democratic Party really has to acknowledge. If you can't even win over your own base, your core constituents, how are you going to get moderate Republicans to your side? I mean, it's just absurd to me. They are so mindless. They have no strategy whatsoever they just basically say we're right you're wrong accept it now she actually does address this point that i'm making she says left-wing democrats frequently argue about the need to mobilize the base as a reason to run progressive candidates but the strongest part of the democratic base consists of african americans and among the districts the committee has intervened in only two have an african-american population percentage that is above or that is in the double digits so she's correct to point out that progressive policies are popular among African Americans, because that's true. But really, she's making the opposite argument that Joy Reid makes. Because what does Joy Ann Reid say? She states that we can't go with progressive policies because that only resonates with white voters when the Democratic Party's core base is with black voters. But what Elaine is arguing here is that, well, since there's not a lot of African American voters in this particular district, well, there's no way for the Democratic Party to excite the base with progressive policies because there's just not enough people to come out and uh, vote for these Democrats who are super progressive. So she's saying basically that um, progressive policies will only resonate with African-American voters. Joy Reid says it'll only resonate with white voters when really they're both wrong. It will resonate with everyone because, again, look at internal polling. When you go issue by issue, progressive policies are incredibly popular among the Democratic Party's base. And her underlying implication here that white voters won't come out to support progressive candidates and that, you know, they'll only support moderates, it's just simply not true. She provides absolutely no statistics or evidence to back up her claim. She just pulled it out of her ass and acted as if it was a fact when it's not. So this article, I mean, strategically speaking, she's giving Democrats the worst advice ever. I shouldn't have to explain why rigging primaries and interfering in primaries is a bad strategy. You're going to piss off your base. You're going to not just demoralize them, but you're going to drive them away. You're going to drive them to third parties. So it's not smart. Now, she's also being dishonest, as I alluded to earlier, because she states in the article that when the DCCC interferes in elections, they usually only suggest, quote, usually gently, that someone run for a different office or clear the field for a stronger candidate. But she's lying by omission. She's not detailing the full scope of interference. She's not talking about the really disgusting ways the DCCC and the Democratic Party establishment and state Democratic parties try to rig primaries against progressives. She doesn't talk about how they try to cripple their campaigns by cutting off their access to NGP van. She doesn't talk about how they covertly wage smear campaigns against progressives. I mean, she, she actually does reference that, to be fair, with regard to Laura Moser, but she doesn't talk about how widespread this issue is. And furthermore, she doesn't talk about how it's just immoral for them to do this when they're claiming to be neutral. So they're lying to us, and she's saying that it's okay if they lie to us. 
When it comes to her argument that American political parties don't have as much power as parties do in other democracies, this is such a disingenuous point to make. She basically performed mental jujitsu and tried to legitimize her argument by hiding behind academia and political science, but she's not telling you the full story about political parties and how there's real differences between open and closed political parties. We don't live in a parliamentary system like the United Kingdom where parties field candidates exclusively and basically you can only vote for a party you have no say as to who they nominate to leadership positions that's not the type of system we live in we live in an open party presidential system where we directly elect presidents and lawmakers independently and as a result party leaders shouldn't be able to bias the results in their favor or flip elections in the event they don't go their way political parties in the u.s are decentralized in part because we live in a federal system. So it doesn't make sense to say that national Democrats should be able to call the shots over 50 unique state parties, but even just ignoring her cherry-picking of political science. I just have to go back to the underlying premise. She's arguing that restricting voter choice is a good thing. She's arguing that the status quo, the Democratic Party establishment, should be able to undermine the will of voters. And the examples that she cites to prove her point are of the 2010 Tea Party wave. She states that, you know, maybe Republicans would have been able to take back the House and the Senate if they rigged primaries against members of the Tea Party. Maybe they would have been able to stop Donald Trump if they had superdelegates. She doesn't say this, but it's implied in the article. So, I mean, she's basically arguing here that party leaders should be able to change the results of elections if they don't like them. You're arguing that a party that has democracy in their name should be able to undermine democracy. Shame on you. There's nothing else to say. It's embarrassing. The fact that you are on the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee and you hold these types of undemocratic views is terrifying. The Democratic Party should distance themselves from you because this is absolutely despicable. Lately, it seems as though Amazon is doing everything in its power to make Americans hate them. And if you were on the fence about whether or not Amazon was one of, if not the shittiest company in the country, this headline should help clear things up for you. Amazon puts 7,000 jobs on hold because of a tax that would help Seattle's homeless population. Wow. Their CEO is the richest man in the world. And they are putting jobs on hold in protest of a tax that would help ameliorate a crisis that they helped cause. Think of how disgusting and morally reprehensible that is. As Think Progress reports, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos has more money than he knows what to do with. What Bezos does not want to spend money on at all is helping the homeless population in the city where his company is located. On Wednesday, Amazon announced the company would halt the construction of a new building in downtown Seattle it was planning to build, jeopardizing some 7,000 jobs 
Why? Because the company opposes a tax being considered by city council. The tax targets 500 to 600 businesses in the city that gross at least $20 million a year. The companies would be charged a head tax at $500 per employee. In 2021, the head tax would be replaced by a 0.7% payroll tax. The payroll tax would wind up costing Amazon more than the initial head tax. Considering Seattle Amazon employees are paid about an average of $110,000 per year, according to data from Job Review's site Glassdoor. I can confirm that pending the outcome of the head tax vote by city council, Amazon has paused all construction planning on our Block 18 project in downtown Seattle and is evaluating options to sublease all space in our recently leased Rainer Square building, a spokesperson for Amazon told the Seattle Times. The city council is expected to vote on the tax on May 14th. The city estimates that the tax would raise an estimated $75 million annually, with Amazon paying roughly $20 million in 2019 and 2020. One might think for a company that pulled in $1.6 billion last quarter, they could afford to help out the city of Seattle and its most vulnerable residents, especially considering the extent to which Amazon's presence in the city has exacerbated the housing crisis there. Yeah, I mean, you'd think, right? But nope. Anything that hurts their bottom line, no matter how disgustingly rich they are, doesn't matter. Now, there are additional facts that make this story exponentially more infuriating. So, two years ago, the state of, uh, or the city of Seattle, rather, reached a state of emergency where there were 169 deaths related to homelessness. People are literally dying due to homelessness. It's a state of emergency. Amazon doesn't care at all. Their CEO, Jeff Bezos, is worth $130.8 billion. Again, the richest man in the world. Doesn't seem to care. And can you guess how much Amazon paid last year in taxes? Zero dollars. Now, that's all awful facts about Amazon, but that's not even taken into consideration the way that they treat their employees. Because even if... Amazon employees in Seattle make six figures. Well, their regular employees, the people who deliver the packages to our doors, they barely survive. And Amazon puts so much pressure on them that some of them are literally carrying pee jugs so they don't stop to use the bathroom. So they're treating these people like robots until they're able to just outright replace them with robots. They have no regard for humanity. They don't care at all about human suffering whatsoever. It's all about increasing profits. It's all about increasing shareholder value and making their CEO even richer than he already is. So what's he going to do with all that money? In a recent interview, the article points out that he said he's going to invest in uh, space tourism. <laughs> As someone who cares about Uh, astronomy and you know things that we need to be invested as a species in space travel why don't you use your money to do something about us here at home on earth and see this whole story gets more absurd when you learn about just how greedy the billionaire class is because as time reports billionaires made so much money last year they could end extreme poverty seven times and yes that's what money billionaires collectively made just last year seven times they could have ended poverty what did they choose to do 
store that money in bank accounts. So that article goes on to state, the global economy created a record number of billionaires last year, exacerbating inequality amid a weakening of workers' rights and a corporate push to maximize shareholder returns, charity organization Oxfam International said in a new report. The world now has 2,043 billionaires after a new one emerged every two days in the past year, the nonprofit organization said in a report published Monday. The group of mostly men saw its wealth surge by $762 billion, which is enough money to end extreme poverty seven times over, according to Oxfam. According to separate data compiled by Bloomberg, the top 500 billionaires' net worth grew 24% to $5.38 trillion in 2017, while the world's richest person, Amazon.com CEO Jeff Bezos, saw a gain of $33.7 billion. And can you guess what contributed to their wealth last year? The tax breaks we gave them. We live in a really, really sick world where people are so greedy. They have no regard for human life. They don't care about human suffering whatsoever. All they care about is amassing an amount of money so large, they're never going to be able to spend it. I don't care how much you invest in space tourism, Jeff Bezos. You're never, ever going to be able to spend that much money. So the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And really, that's that's an oversimplification because the poor are getting really, really poor. People are dying from homelessness and the rich are getting absurdly rich. It's insane. It's absurd. If you wonder why people are gravitating away towards capitalism and why it's losing popularity, it's because of stories like this. Capitalism, unfettered capitalism more specifically, it allows these rich assholes like Jeff Bezos to become so rich they couldn't spend all the money that they have if they tried to. I mean, if you had a billion dollars right now, how could you possibly spend all of that money? If you tried, it would be extremely difficult to do that. Human beings do not need that much wealth. They just don't. So the correct response, since billionaires are doing so well, is to take that money from them, redistribute their wealth that they don't need, and give it to people who need it. But you see... We have socialism in this country, but it's it's reverse socialism. You know, it's this principle of reverse Robin Hood, really, where we take from the poor and give to the rich. Because what did Donald Trump's tax plan do? It raised taxes over 10 years on poor people, people who make less than $75,000, whereas it cut taxes for the wealthy. Those tax breaks that he gave to you and I, they expire. Those tax breaks that he gave to rich people like Jeff Bezos, they're permanent. So we already have socialism. Wealth is being redistributed from the poor to the rich. And when we dare to bring up this idea about taking their money and giving it to people who need it, we're called extremists. We're called radical. It's immoral for him to have that much money. Just by him simply having that much money, that makes him a bad person if he's not doing anything about it. If you can cure hunger, if you can end extreme poverty and you're not, you are a bad person. Because when you have that much money, you have a responsibility to take care of those less fortunate, but they're not doing it. So all of his money should be taken. Take this greedy pig's fortune take it away, redistribute it to the people who need it. He doesn't need $130 billion. Leave him with $500,000 and he'll be, he'll be okay. He'll do just fine. That's what I think should happen. With how greedy they are, I don't think that we should resist our urge to be equally greedy when they're just, basically, they're so rich that they're flaunting it now. They're getting 
brazen about how much they hate the poor, that they don't even want to do anything that would cost them a fraction more if it means helping out Seattle's homeless population. It's disgusting. Over the weekend, there was a glimmer of hope for rational human beings because we learned that Donald Trump's CIA nominee, Gina Haspel, actually offered to withdraw her nomination over concerns that her confirmation hearings were turned into a gigantic spectacle, obviously, due to her role as a key player in the CIA's torture program during the Bush years. Now, unfortunately, the White House ended up convincing her to stay and not withdraw, but Trump actually took to Twitter to defend her, and I want you to pay close attention to the strategy he's using to shield her from criticism because you might recognize it from somewhere. He states, My highly respected nominee for CIA director Gina Haspel has come under fire because she was too tough on terrorists. Think of that. In these very dangerous times, we have the most qualified person, a woman, who Democrats want out because she is too tough on terror. Win, Gina. So make no mistake about it. That subtle reminder there that Gina Haspel is a woman is basically an implication that, well, maybe criticism of Gina Haspel, since she's so qualified, must be due to sexism. I mean, she was only tough on terrorists. If a man were tough on terrorists, would you be saying the same thing to him? That's what he's arguing here. So, riddle me this, Captain Contradiction. If you care so much about Gina Haspel breaking the glass ceiling, so to speak, and becoming the first female CIA director, if that really matters to you, why didn't you choose to withdraw from your race against Hillary Clinton? Because if that really is important to you specifically, as you're saying now, why didn't you drop out and let a woman become the first president of the United States? You accused Hillary Clinton of playing the woman card, and here you are doing the exact same thing, hiding behind identity politics to shield someone who is a war criminal from criticism. How despicable. I mean, this goes without saying. We don't not like Gina Haspel because she's a woman. We dislike her because she's a war criminal and a terrible human being. As the New York Times explains, Ms. Haspel ran a secret black site CIA prison in Thailand where detainees were subjected to brutal interrogation techniques. She was also involved in approving the destruction of videotapes of interrogation sessions at the Thailand prison. The agency has since closed such prisons and renounced the techniques including waterboarding, sleep deprivation, and confinement in boxes. Among the materials handed over to the Senate or logs of internal chats from a CIA instant message system in which Ms. Haspel appeared to raise no objections to the interrogation program or the methods employed against Qaeda suspects, according to an American official who, like others, declined to be identified discussing confidential matters. The official said Ms. Haspel seemed completely comfortable with what was being done to the prisoners. Her allies said she hardly relished the task but was carrying out a program approved by policymakers and lawyers. So my question is, how can someone torture another human being and not raise objections to it? She didn't question, is this something that we should be doing? I mean, not only does this violate the U.S. Constitution and international law, but it's immoral. Any sane, moral-thinking human can recognize that this is, this is torture, this is wrong. And she didn't raise any objections to it. And even if you think that torture 
works, which it doesn't, but if you thought torture was an effective strategy, wouldn't it be difficult? I mean, wouldn't you still not want to be the person who had to do it? See, not caring makes her a bad person in and of itself, but there's actually evidence to suggest that she enjoyed torturing, and I'm not making this up. So as Rand Paul explains, there were some reports that she actually joyfully tortured people. Vegina Haspel said, good job, I like the way you're drooling. This is about Zubiday, who, as he was being waterboarded. It adds to the re realism. I'm almost buying it. You wouldn't think a grown man would do that. When you read that, sort of the joyful glee at someone who's being tortured, I find it just amazing that anyone would consider having this woman at the head of the CIA. And so my opposition to her is over her direct participation in interrogation and her gleeful enjoyment at uh, the suffering of someone being tortured. So this is a deranged lunatic who is a criminal who destroyed evidence of crimes against humanity who might literally be a psychopath. I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean, this is psychopathic behavior. So needless to say, when we are expressing and vocalizing our opposition to Gina Haspel, it has nothing to do with her being a woman, Donald Trump. It has everything to do with her being a war criminal who should be in prison right now, not leading the CIA. So Donald Trump, I mean, it doesn't matter how often he contradicts himself and uses strategies he once condemned. He doesn't care. His objective is to get what he wants, and he doesn't care how stupid and hypocritical it makes him look. Playing the woman card after you accused Hillary Clinton of doing the same exact thing. I mean, that's disgusting. It's shameless. Donald Trump using identity politics to shield a war criminal from criticism. Shame on you, Donald Trump. And let me just say this. To all of the Republicans who denounce the Democratic Party's hyper-focus on identity politics, they do the same thing. Republicans focus on identity politics just as much as liberals do. Now, getting back to Gina Haspel, even though she's receiving a lot of criticism for being a criminal and a torturer, well, I wouldn't necessarily write her off just yet because there is a chance that she could actually be confirmed because Susan Collins, who is typically seen as a moderate Republican, says that she's not just automatically dismissing her. She's going to listen to what she has to say at her confirmation hearings. And, of course, there's even one Democrat that decided to cave. Can you guess who it is? Joe Manchin. So, fresh after his primary challenge with a real progressive, he's going full Republican. And he is indicating that he will, in fact support Gina Haspel. He's even more conservative than Susan Collins. He's not even waiting to listen to see what she has to say. He's just saying, I'm going to vote for her no matter what. So I'll leave you now with some clips from her confirmation hearing because it happened by the time a lot of you see this video and I think it's important. It is hugely important. Capitol Police, please remove her. The question is, what do you do to human beings in U.S. custody? Bloody Gina! Bloody Gina! Bloody Gina! 
resisting. It's on the record. Stop resisting. Oh and God. in many respects, in many respects, you guys going into secret fighting. Stop resisting. I'm not resisting. Yes, you are. Give me, your, give, me your give me your arm. Give me your arm. I'm lying on. Give me your arm. It's dislocated, man. Give me your arm. My left arm is Give me your arm. My left arm is dislocated. Damn it. Give me your arm. Stop hurting him. I'm trying to understand. My left arm is. Ah! Hold on. Stop fighting. I'm not fighting. I'm on the ground. Hold on. And if you'd let me get my glasses on, I can see what's happening. You're hurting him. You guys are hurting me. Stop hurting him. After 9-11, I didn't look to uh, go sit on the Swiss desk. I stepped up. I was not on the sidelines. I was on the front lines in the Cold War, and I was on the front lines in the fight against Al-Qaeda. I'm very proud of the fact that we captured the perpetrator of 9-11, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, I think we did extraordinary work. To me, the tragedy is that the controversy surrounding the interrogation program, which I've, as I've already indicated to Senator Warner, I fully understand that, but it has cast a shadow over what has been a major contribution to protecting this country. Having served in that tumultuous time, I can offer you my personal commitment, clearly and without reservation, that under my leadership, on my watch, CIA will not restart a detention and interrogation program. Ms. Haspel, you didn't actually answer the question, what would you do if the president ordered you to get back in that business? Senator, the, the president um, has a, selected me to give him yes advice. No. I would not restart under any circumstances in an interrogation program at CIA, under any circumstances. Thank you. Is do you believe that the previous interrogation techniques were immoral? Senator, I believe that CIA officers to whom you referred. It's a yes or no answer. Do you believe the previous interrogation techniques were immoral? I'm not asking do you believe they were legal? I'm asking do you believe they were immoral? Senator, I believe that CIA did extraordinary yes no work to prevent another attack on this country given the legal tools that we were authorized Please to use. Please answer yes or no. Do you believe in hindsight that those techniques were immoral? Senator, what I believe sitting here today is that I support the higher moral standard we have decided to hold ourselves to. Can you please to. answer the question? Senator, I, I think I've answered the question. No, you've not. Do you believe the previous techniques, now armed with hindsight, do you believe they were immoral? Yes or no? Senator, I believe that we should hold ourselves to the moral standard outlined in the Army Field Manual. Um, you told me earlier this week that you supported the decision of the CIA's Deputy Director of Operations to order the destruction of those videotapes depicting the use of EITs. Um, would you still support that order today? Senator, I would not. 
I think it's, as I said, it's very important that people learn. Experience is a good teacher. And the piece that was missing from the tapes was making sure that we had all the stakeholders' concurrence. There's also another very important leadership lesson. And as director of CIA, when your officers are concerned about their physical security, you sure. can't let it languish in your inbox Absolutely. for three I years agree. with no action. We should support that security. Why couldn't the agency have simply digitized that video and then blacked out the faces of any agents in those videos? Why, why actually destroy the videotapes? Doesn't that feel like a cover-up? even if it isn't. Senator, I don't think we were worried about official release. This was at a time when the entire program was the subject of unauthorized leaks and someone was found guilty of those unauthorized leaks. So the concern was an irresponsible leak of our officers' faces to the world, not, not an official release. No, I understand that. But if you would have blacked out the agents' faces, destroyed the videotapes, and then kept a digital record, um, that would have addressed those security concerns. Senator, I'm, I'm, I'm just not a, a, a technical person, so I, I don't... It's not that complicated. Well, uh, I, I don't... Senator, I, I don't know if that was considered or not. Never served. Were you an advocate for destroying the tapes? Senator, I absolutely was an advocate, if we could, within and conforming to U.S. law, and if we could get policy concurrence to eliminate the security risk posed to our officers by those tapes. A new report from Oxfam estimates that with the combined wealth billionaires accumulated last year alone, they could have ended extreme poverty seven times over. But they chose to do nothing about poverty. So, billionaires are greedy. That's not surprising. And with Donald Trump being a billionaire, he's showing us that billionaires aren't just greedy, but they actually loathe the poor. And this is evident when you look at how he is now pushing for a cut to children's health insurance. And as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, months after ramming through deficit exploding tax cuts for billionaires and large corporations, President Donald Trump and the GOP are now looking for programs to slash to make up the difference. And they're starting with children's health care. According to a Washington Post report late Monday, Trump is sending a plan to Congress that calls for stripping more than $15 billion in previously approved spending, $7 billion of which would come from the broadly popular children's health insurance program. Described by one Trump administration official as the biggest rescission request that has ever been sent to Congress, the proposal needs a mere majority in both the House and Senate to pass. Speaking with the Post on Monday, Representative Mark Walker said the Trump administration has assured Republicans that this package of spending cuts is just the first of many. As the Post reported, CHIP is just one of over 30 programs the White House is moving to slash. So getting back to the question we posed last year about how he's going to pay for tax cuts for the rich? By taking from the poor. He's taking money away from the poor. He's cutting social safety net programs in order to pay for tax cuts for the rich. You know what I call that? Theft. That's theft. It's reverse Robin Hood. You're taking from the poor to give to the rich. See, because he wouldn't need to make up all of this additional revenue. He wouldn't need to cut funding for social safety net programs if he didn't just give billionaires trillions of dollars in tax cuts. But he wanted to make sure that he set himself up 
So when he retires, him and his family could live with absolutely no care in the world. They could be as rich as they possibly could be, and uh, the poor continue to suffer. This is really the priorities of Republicans, and it's not just Donald Trump, even though he is a greedy billionaire and was a con man before he was elected. This is what the Republican Party wants. They often try to distance themselves from Donald Trump and talk about how he doesn't represent our party. More establishment figures will say this, but this is exactly what you wanted. I don't get the Republicans who are complaining about Donald Trump. I really don't. This is exactly what your party has been pushing for, overtly so, since the Reagan years. So why are you complaining about Donald Trump? Because he says nasty things on Twitter? Because he acts like a bully? He's wearing Republicanism on his sleeve. That's what he's doing. He puts an ugly face to the Republican Party's morally reprehensible policies. And he just comes out and admits that, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't care about the poor. He's cutting children's health insurance. If I had to choose anyone in the country, which nobody should go without health care. If I had to choose anyone, though, certainly I would prioritize children, right? I mean, we want to make sure that the next generation is taken care of. But he's cutting children's health insurance programs. How despicable of a person do you have to be to call for a deep cut of $7 billion to the children's health insurance program? And again, this really, it's baffling when you think about how CHIP, which was a bipartisan effort before, is now a partisan issue. Now Republicans are attacking something they once supported. That kind of gives you one of many examples just how extremist the Republican Party has become. They are a far-right extremist party, and this proves it. So, I mean, this goes without saying, Donald Trump is taking us in the opposite direction of what we should be going in. We shouldn't be cutting funding for the poor and social safety net programs and children's health insurance to pay for tax cuts for people who already have more money than they'll ever be able to spend in their lifetime. We should be taxing the hell out of people like Jeff Bezos, who has $130.8 billion, who could never, ever spend that much money in his lifetime. His children won't be able to spend all of that wealth. His grandchildren won't be able to spend all of that wealth when he ultimately passes it on to them. It's impossible. That's just so much money. So to them, they're just collecting money like it's a hobby when they don't need it. Meanwhile, Flint, Michigan doesn't have clean drinking water yet. There's extreme poverty in the United States. There's a state of emergency in Seattle where people are literally dying from homelessness. Our infrastructure is barely on par with third world countries, and yet we have to make sure that the rich get even richer in this country. This is what happens when you let capitalism run its course. It's devastating. It's exploitative. I mean, this is one of those stories where I don't really know what to say about it. It's just, it's disgusting. You you kind of just have this reaction to it where you're, you're repulsed by it. It's gross. We shouldn't even have to be arguing that this is wrong, but we're in a state of American politics where we have to say things that should be no-brainers. It's absurd. It feels like we're living in the twilight zone, you know, and we're in the darkest timeline where the opposite of what Congress and the president should be doing is what they always do. 
As it stands, California's net neutrality bill, sponsored by state lawmaker Scott Weiner, would in fact be the toughest in the country if it can be codified into law. And it looks as though it has the momentum to do that. Now, I've recently spoken about attempts to water it down by sellout Democrats. And I've also spoken about how telecom lobbyists are doing everything in their power to defeat this bill. But as far as we know, it seems as though it's still a pretty strong bill. We'll have to look at the final text. But the point is that this bill is important because it's so strong. It goes even further than the 2015 protections that the FCC secured. It includes zero rating and a bunch of other protections that strengthens freedom on the internet. And that's really important. But we got really good news about this bill because Scott Weiner, who's the individual that is pictured right here. So he is trying to export this bill to other states, and he's teaming up with a lawmaker in New York to do just that. So according to John Brodkin of Ars Technica, a California bill that would impose the nation's strictest state net neutrality law is being replicated in the New York state legislature. In California, the bill was approved last month by two Senate committees despite protests from AT&T and cable lobbyists, and it needs to go through one more committee before getting a vote of the full state Senate. Today, a lawmaker in New York said he has teamed up with the California bill's author to introduce an equivalent bill in the New York legislature. The bicoastal effort to restore the rights of an open and free internet through net neutrality legislation would cover nearly one-fifth of the American population if both states enact the proposed law, the California and New York state senators said in their announcement. The California and New York bills would replicate the U.S.-wide bans on blocking, throttling, and paid prioritization that were implemented by the FCC in 2015, and they would go beyond the FCC rules with a ban on paid data cap exemptions. The California bill was sponsored by State Senator Scott Weiner. In New York, State Senator Brad Hoylman said that he is introducing a bill today that includes all the key consumer protections from Weiner's proposal. Weiner and Hoylman will try to convince lawmakers in more states to pass legislation similar to theirs, their announcement said. If successful, the strategy could address the broadband industry's complaint that ISPs shouldn't have to face a patchwork of different state laws. So this is an incredibly important move because they're not only teaming up to craft California-esque legislation for net neutrality in New York, but they're trying to make sure that other states do the same. This is great. And as I read the story, I couldn't help but think about how big telecom lobbyists are just seething right now <laughs> with a rage. They, they can't be happy about this because AT&T um, lobbyists for big telecom, they absolutely attacked California's bill and they put a lot of pressure on Democrats, hence why I did the segment a few weeks ago about how their pressure was working. I mean, some Democrats were agreeing to try to water it down. But the harder we push to protect net neutrality, the harder they fight back. So this is really important. And if we can wage multiple battles in different states, then that makes the job of these lobbyists exponentially more difficult. And that's our goal right now. We want to make sure that we win because at the end of the day, protecting net neutrality is the ultimate goal. So this is incredibly encouraging. And I really just want to go through the details about why California and now New York's bill stands out from the rest. It's because they really do tackle tackle this phenomenon known as zero rating. So what zero rating is, is it's basically this loophole that was left out in the FCC's 2015 um, order where they secured uh, the internet as a utility under Title II of the 1934 Communications Act. Basically, 
that didn't stop these companies from exempting their own content from data caps. So AT&T, for example, could say, look, you have a data cap of 10 gigs, but if you use our video streaming service, hypothetically speaking, I don't know if AT&T has, has a video streaming service, but hypothetically speaking, they could say, if you use our video streaming service, that's not going to count towards your data cap that we have. But if you use Netflix, that will actually eat up data pretty quickly. So what does that do? That's anti-competitive because it influences people to use AT&T's video service over Netflix's. And this is one of the things that the FCC needed to address and what they were kind of signaling that they would address under the tenure of Tom Wheeler towards the end of his career there at the uh, FCC, but they never got to it. And now there's this big glaring loophole left open that states are now starting to address. So I think that as more states pass net neutrality laws, this does strengthen our case against the FCC's odd provision, honestly, to try to preempt them from passing their own net neutrality rules, because I don't know that the FCC and Ajit Pai has the authority to do that. Can they really block states from passing net neutrality? I mean, that's yet to be determined. We'll find out if legally they can do that, but certainly, I think that as more states do this, we strengthen our case, because state autonomy matters here, because it's about protecting net neutrality. So look, I just wanted to share the good news. This is a great story, and I'm really happy and thankful that these lawmakers see value in protecting net neutrality and making sure that other states also have net neutrality. So I wanted to give you guys the preliminary results from some primary elections that took place today. As I report on this, um, they're still counting the vote, but for the most part, we do have the results from a number of really important races that we were watching. Now, in particular, I was watching the races in Ohio and West Virginia. So I was rooting for Dennis Kucinich in the gubernatorial race in Ohio, and I was uh, rooting for Paula Jean Smurgeon in the senatorial race in the state of West Virginia. Now, when it comes to Joe Manchin versus Paula Jean Swearingen, she got crushed. Uh, Joe Manchin, at this point, with 43% of precincts reporting, got 69.2% of the vote to Paula Jean Swearingen's 30.8% of the vote. So that is a definite gut punch. That one hurt because she was one of the most visible progressives. She was running a fantastic campaign and she refused corporate money. So this sucks because this was someone who, if she would have won that primary, she would have really made a difference for the people of West Virginia and the United States. But unfortunately, corporatist Joe Manchin, he won. So, I mean, this is something that it, it sucks, right? But we don't want to get too down on ourselves about this because we know going into these races that um, we're at a huge disadvantage. If you're not taking corporate cash, it's difficult to get your name out there. And Paula Jean Swearingen, she didn't have the name recognition um, that Joe Manchin had. Um, and certainly, to run for Senate is definitely more ambitious. It's more difficult than running for the House. So this sucks. The fact that it was that large of a margin to where she lost, like he doubled at this point. I mean, we don't know for sure, but he doubled her vote total. That that hurts, especially for someone as big as a sellout as he is. But she ran a phenomenal campaign, so I don't think that she should be down on herself. But certainly, you know, this sucks. I'm not going to lie. This is incredibly disappointing. Now, getting to another race. So, in Ohio, 
it was Dennis Kucinich and essentially Richard Cordray who faced off. Richard Cordray is, he's not the worst Democrat, but I wouldn't call him a progressive. He was endorsed by Elizabeth Warren because he's the former head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So she loves him. But is he progressive? I mean, on some issues, sure, he supports universal pre-K. He does not support Medicare for all. So um, when it comes to him versus Dennis Kucinich, I mean, clearly, if you're progressive, the one to root for undoubtedly was Dennis Kucinich. He lost. So with 19% of precincts still reporting, this is early, um, it's being called for Richard Cordray. He got 62.6% of the vote, whereas Dennis Kucinich got 22.5% of the vote. Richard Cordray nearly tripled Dennis Kucinich. So awful showing um, for progressives. But I mean, I'm really proud of Dennis Kucinich for being an unapologetic progressive. He he pulled no punches and he ran a campaign based specifically on the issues. And there were smears against him. And, you know, the establishment did not like him. They were rooting for Richard Cordray and they got what they wanted. Now, I do want to talk about a Republican primary in West Virginia between, uh, I guess you could say, more moderate Republicans and a complete lunatic named Don Blankenship that everyone was freaking out about. This guy, there was really something off about him. Like, it wasn't just that politically he was wrong on every issue ever. Um, he refers to Chinese people as China people. Swamp Captain Mitch McConnell has created millions of jobs for China people. While doing so, Mitch has gotten rich. In fact, his China family has given him tens of millions of dollars. Mitch's swamp people are now running false negative ads against me. They are also childishly calling me despicable and mentally ill. The war to drain the swamp and create jobs for West Virginia people has begun. I will beat Joe Manchin and ditch cocaine Mitch for the sake of the kids. What the hell did you just say? Thankfully, that guy lost. He garnered 19.4% of the vote. He came in third. Um, at this point, they're not calling it, but Patrick Morrissey certainly has a hefty lead with 36.5% of the vote. But for the most part, it seems like um, Don Blankenship is defeated. Evan Jenkins is coming in second there. Um, so that's good news. But getting, getting to um, the progressive races, that's the ones that are very difficult. But let me just say this to progressives. Do not allow this to demoralize you because that is what the establishment wants. They want you to look at these defeats of Paula Jean Swearingen and uh, Dennis Kucinich and think, well, there you have it. We were right. The moderates are the way to go. But when we decided to start a political revolution and continue Bernie Sanders' political revolution, rather, None of us were under the illusion that this would be easy. This is difficult. We are going up against a behemoth, the establishment. And that's something that's very difficult to do. And because we're principled, we are handicapping ourselves by not taking corporate money. But that's the right thing to do. If we're going to win, we're going to win the right way. And our candidates are going to prove to us that they're not corrupt. So we're not going to win every single race. We may not even win a lot of races. Maybe we just win a few. But that doesn't mean that we stop. What we are advocating for are policy positions that are popular, that the overwhelming majority of the American people support. And we may not have the money. We may not have the name recognition. We may not have the resources that some of these corporate Democrats have. But that doesn't mean we stop. We keep going.
You win some, you lose some, that's politics. But we have to get over it and we have to keep fighting. There are other progressives out there that need our support. Amy Valela, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Alison Hartson, or David Hildebrand against Dianne Feinstein. They need our support. So we can't give up. We can't be defeated and demoralized, even though it sucks. Um, we just have to keep going. Because this is tough, but we knew that when we started this. So, um, yeah, the fight continues. Well, that's all I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in to the episode. If you've made it this far in the program, thank you so much for your ongoing support. And to anyone who supports us through Patreon and PayPal, thank you so much. I cannot ever overemphasize, even if it's annoying, just how important your support is and how much it means to us. You help the show to literally survive in an age where YouTube is slowly but surely becoming a lot less welcoming to independent content creators such as myself. So thank you all so much for your ongoing support. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support. And as always, if you want to get access to our full episodes before they hit YouTube, you could become a $5 Patreon patron. So thank you all so much. I will see you next week. Have a great day. 